Hello and welcome to another Linguistics Career Cast, the podcast devoted to exploring careers for linguists outside academia. I'm your host, Laurel Sutton. Daniel Ginsberg is the Director of Strategic Initiatives at the American Anthropological Association, where they bring their knowledge of association management and organizational anthropology to help association leaders understand the culture of the AAA community and create new pathways into active, engaged membership. For the previous four years, as Director of Education and Professional Practice, they oversaw the AAA's professional development and public outreach efforts, including non-formal education, such as internships, workshops, and mentoring, as well as informal education, such as career development resources, youth outreach, and webinars. They have taught as an adjunct professor in the American University Departments of Anthropology and World Languages and Cultures, and as a public high school ESL teacher. They also serve on the program committee at the LSA. Topics discussed include anthropology, TESOL, networking, Center for Applied Linguistics, postdocs, AAAL, project management, and non-formal education. Links to Daniel's LinkedIn profile and other resources are in the show notes. I would like to welcome our guest, Daniel Ginsberg, who I have known about for a while, but we've never actually um, made contact in this way. And you are especially interesting because you did your linguistic stuff and you've been employed mostly via anthropology, which is quite adjacent to linguistics. There's a ton of overlap there. In fact, personally, one of the reasons I got so interested in linguistics was taking a linguistic anthropology class when I was an undergraduate, which was just fascinating to me. So we want to hear about your experience in linguistics, but then also what you've been doing for the last eight years and how that's changed. So first of all, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Laurel. It's such a pleasure to be here. I think people are going to be super interested in in your very interesting nonlinear path. So my, my question to all my guests first is, how did you find out about linguistics and decide that that was going to be a path for you in higher education? Um, those are two different questions. Okay, um, great. The way, the way that I found out about linguistics is um, I had sort of seen it in the course catalog as an undergrad, mm-hmm. um, and it was, it was senior year, and I was um, writing my uh, honors thesis in comparative literature, um, and I had recently dropped down, I was a comparative literature and math double major, I had dropped down my math major to a minor, which give me a little more flexibility to take more electives. And I was like, oh, I've heard of this linguistics thing. Let's check it out because (laughs) it seems like, you know, it sort of matches my interests on several keywords. Um, And that was it. You know, I took that class and it was really just the intro. And it was sort of eye-opening, as I'm sure a lot of (laughs) listeners will relate to. Uh Um, And then that was the fall semester. And then in the spring semester, I took a sort of over-under um, course with some grad students in it. Uh, it was an introduction to semantics because that was what was available. Um, and then uh, I went from there to get my master's degree in TESOL and teaching English to speakers of mm. other languages. Mm-hmm. And so there was more linguistics involved in that, but I wouldn't call it an academic path in linguistics. That was my mm. first career as okay. a language teacher. Do you feel like having some linguistics background prepared you especially well for the, the TESOL part of it? It totally did. I think, I mean, among TESOL professionals, there's sort of a trope that like linguistics is very arcane and esoteric. Um, <laughs> Great. And I've, I've heard this like at, at uh, conferences where you'd have a keynote saying, no, you too can do linguistics. It's not as hard as you think. <laughs> and I was like, no, please, I want more of that. That was always like, 
you know, the, the stuff that came hardest to me in that career um, was figuring out things like classroom management. Yeah. Um, what was easier was things like figuring out how verbs work and yeah. like techniques for explaining that or helping students to sort of reach their own understanding of it. Mm-hmm. Interesting. I That just seems so funny to me. I mean, I, I agree with you. Linguistics, well, as linguists, of course, you know, we're biased, but Linguistics seems like the easiest thing, right? It's so applicable in so many areas of education and especially TESOL because you're using your language knowledge, but you're also using like your sociolinguistic knowledge and your semantic uh-huh. knowledge to help students understand what language is and how it works in the context and all the rest of it. Okay. Well, it's like I used to tell my students, right? I mean, <laughs> I'd have one student who's like, you know, here's how we say this in Chinese. It's easy. Mm-hmm. And I would say to them, well, it's, it's easy when you know. Mm-hmm. And I think it's the same the same principle as like, well, you know, if we know linguistics, it feels easy to us. Um, yeah, yeah. But it takes work to remember that, you know, somebody new is coming to it every day. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So you were doing TESOL and then? Um, and then, so I worked in a bunch of different places. I was in um, community-based nonprofits and mm-hmm. in, the, in the intensive language programs for a little while. Um, I got a English language fellowship to... Uh, teach in in uh, Serbia for a year. Mm-hmm. Um, I came back from that and I got a job teaching in a public high school outside of Boston. And I was there for three years. Um, and then in, in the second year, I also added a mathematics endorsement to my teaching license because, um, you know, there's a sort of commonplace that like uh, math is an easier course for immigrant and refugee students compared to like English and science and history. And maybe it is, but also it really depends on their educational background and their first language. Um, and so we decided that we wanted to be able to offer linguistically appropriate math instruction to language learners. And so I got this added to my license because I had been a math minor. Um, right. And so I spent two years also teaching math to English learners. Um, but then sort of as that was wrapping up, and we were also, you know, there was some, uh, for family reasons, I was going to be leaving and moving um, from from Boston to DC. But around that time, I was thinking about like a lot of research questions that I was curious about around, like, I had this um, intuition that, you know, you have a lot of adolescent English learners who feel really sort of infantilized by not being able to speak the language. Mm -hmm. And I was like, how do we respect what they bring with them? Is there a way that even for newcomers, that we could leverage their higher order thinking skills in writing instruction? And I was like, well, that's a research question, and I don't know what to do with it. So maybe the next step for me is PhD school. Mm-hmm. Um, or another thing that came up for me teaching this math class was that we had um, the we were we were using a it's called the PSYOP method. Some listeners might be um, familiar with. It stands for Structured Immersion Observation Protocol, um, and it's a way of combining language and content instruction. And so the idea was for every lesson, my students would need to have one area of math that they would learn and one area of English that they would learn. Mm-hmm. And I said to the instructional coach in my department, well, I get all of my math objectives um, from the math department. Uh, I'm teaching Algebra 1. Um, today's lesson is students will be able to graph linear equations in the plane. What will be my language objective to go mm-hmm. with that? How do I figure that out? And she said, oh, I don't know. Maybe you say students will be able to use the language of graphing linear <sighs> equations in the plane. And so what that told me was that she had no idea. Um, <laughs> Obviously, yes. The more I looked into it, it was like nobody knew. 
Um, and that was another thing that I started to get curious about is like, what is this language of math? Um, but then, like I said, we ended up moving to DC and I, I had this sort of transitional job um, as a language testing professional. I was a test developer at the Center for Applied Linguistics, um, mm -hmm. working on some of the WIDA assessments, which uh, if you're not familiar, those are um, large scale standardized assessments of English language proficiency that were developed for US public schools. And one of the standards that those exams measure is, you know, it's all divided up by content areas. Um, so it tests students on the language of language arts and the language of social studies and the language of science and the language of math. And even there, I was asking around and people had somewhat of a better idea. They had like a concept of classroom discourse. But I could ask this question of like, what is, you know, if, if we're talking about math, does that automatically make it the language of math? Mm -hmm, or are there mm -hmm. certain kinds of like, I don't know, vocabulary or syntactic structures or genre structures or whatever sort of unit of analysis you like? Is there something that's um, distinctive to math and nobody really knew? And so one thing led to another and that ended up being my dissertation topic. That's, I'm, I'm just pondering it, like, that's sort of the perfect encapsulation of where linguistics leads you, right? Like you, yeah. you see something happening in the real world, and then you're like, this could be investigated, we could actually do some studies on this and come up with some real hard data to back it up. And the area you're talking about is quite specialized, right? Like language of math. But again, mm -hmm. it incorporates all those things that we were just talking about a minute ago. It's not just nouns and verbs and structure. It's the social context of learning it and then how you're using it in a classroom, which is all context cues and things like that. It's not just memorizing vocabulary. Yeah, absolutely. And then where I ended up going with the research is that it's also, it's the words that you say and the words that you write on the board and the words that your students say back to you, but it's also equations that you write and point at and graphs and charts that you draw. Mm -hmm. And who sits where in the classroom and do we know how to use our educational technology and like when do you raise your hand versus when do you call out and it sent me sort of on this academic trajectory from language teaching to applied linguistics to sociolinguistics to linguistic anthropology where in the end i was like do i even care about language or is it just this whole communicative ecology <laughs> So while you were in graduate school, what were you thinking was going to be your your path after you got your PhD? You know, um, there are probably few jobs in academia for someone with your qualifications and your, your speciality. Um, yeah. Did it always seem to you like, forget this, I'm not going to make it in academia, I, I need to get a job in the real world? Like, how did you think about that? I mean, that question morphed a bunch of times over, over my time in grad mm. school, where initially when I was in the application phase, it was like, um, I want to figure out how to do research. There are skills that I would get from a PhD that I don't have from my MA. Um, and that was, and also I'm just like really interested in it. I'm sort of, mm -hmm. you know, curious. Um, and that was what set me off to applying in the first case. And then, you know, also real life intervenes, you know, life keeps on mm -hmm. lifing. And we moved to D.C., and so I was only applying to schools in D.C., right. which gave me a choice of Georgetown or the University of Maryland. Mm -hmm. And the University of Maryland, the department 
I haven't really sort of paid attention recently, but at that time it was very sort of neuroscience focused, which was not my interest. Mm -hmm. And so that left me with Georgetown and I applied to Georgetown and I did not get in. Mm-hmm. And so that was when I um, had started working at the Center for Applied Linguistics, and I did this language testing, test development for a while, um, and I started to realize that um, if I keep doing this job, there's like a new test form every year because they've got to keep it fresh. And so it keeps me sort of on this perpetual hamster wheel of like, yeah. you know, I just I just wrote the 2009 exam, and now we're writing the 2010 exam. If I ever wanted to do more than that, I could be somebody's boss, which I was not interested in at all, or I could get more responsibility for research, which would probably require a PhD. Right. And so then I was thinking of it as like, now I have an immediate need, aside from the interest that I had already, that if I got a PhD, it would qualify me to do this other kind of work that I'm interested in. Um, and so then I applied to Georgetown again the following year. I was accepted. Um, without funding, and I went part-time. I kept working, um, and I took two classes, and then eventually they offered me a graduate fellowship, and I uh, went all in on grad school. What do you think was the difference between getting rejected once and then accepted the next time? Oh, I love that question so much, um, because it's it's not what you want it to be, right? <laughs> you want to believe in the meritocracy. Um, right. The difference is, the main difference I can point to um, is who wrote my letters of reference. Ah, of course, of course. Total sense. I yep. was I was so naive, Laurel. Um, the first time that I went to apply to grad schools, the list of, so I was not a linguistics major. I was six, seven years out of school. I was applying to departments based on, I've heard of that university mm -hmm. and they have linguistics. Um, but then we were moving to DC and all of that was moot. But then I'm thinking, you know, who's going to write my letters? It should be somebody who, like, really knows me and can talk about how smart and what a quick learner I am. Mm -hmm. And so I had a letter of reference from, you're going to love this, the teacher who was my mentor teacher and our new teacher induction in the school where I was. Uh -huh. um, I did not have the political savvy to say no graduate admissions committee knows her or will care about her opinion. Exactly. They looked at that and they said, who is this? And then they just put right. it aside very gently. Right. Yes. Right. Um, so the second time around, I got a letter from the director of the language testing division at the Center for Applied Linguistics mm -hmm. to replace her letter. And my, in, my guess is that that's probably what made the difference. Although I also yeah. did have some people around Cal look at my um, personal statement and got feedback on that. Uh -huh. But aside from that, you know, I was the same candidate. I had the same transcripts. I had the same GREs. It wasn't the one additional year of writing language tests that made the difference. Right. Wow, great. That's I'm so glad that you told that story because uh, as we were talking before we started recording, so much of the accepted paradigm for what happens in graduate school and then beyond is based on this perceived meritocracy, which it isn't really. Um, and getting into graduate school is just part of that. And then mm -hmm. it becomes an even more magnified situation when you're looking for a tenure track job because often it's not whether you're the most qualified person for the job. It's who wrote your letters and who mm -hmm. are you friends with and um, who's willing to accept like whatever terrible salary they're going to pay you and who's willing to move to whatever state that you have to go in. So the the idea that higher education is is strictly based on your aptitude and your qualifications and the best fit for the job. Um, not really true and also not super true also in industry, but 
more. I was going to say. Yeah, it's it's not hugely different, but it is different in some ways in that the range of positions that are available are far more and mm-hmm. far more varied in industry. Mm-hmm. So um, if you don't have a connection at a company, you have a connection at another company and that's going to give you a little bit of an in. And the phrase, you know, it's not what you know, who you know, absolutely true. Yes. So I want to get back to your other question, though, of like, what were my professional goals at that time? Yeah, yeah. Um, because once I went, uh, once I accepted the fellowship and was in grad school full time, I was no longer thinking about finishing my PhD and then getting promoted at the Center for Applied Linguistics. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what what sort of the, the story that I told myself at that time was um, there are things that I'm curious about that I want to learn more about that nobody knows about. And as long as I can stay asking those questions, I don't care who signs my paycheck. Mm-hmm. I was not, you know, I, I recognize that like being a professor is one way to do that, but also, you know, having this experience in schools and nonprofits um, and also just sort of being aware, being in DC, being aware of a lot of the federal government jobs that are available and mm-hmm. um, other kinds of, of uh, nonprofit work that's available. It was like, you know, I have all of these options. Um, and that was also sort of like the, focusing on what I was interested in learning was kind of how I oriented myself to my graduate study as I was in it. I used to say to myself, like, um, I should always have some idea. You know, this is when I was in coursework. If I had to write my dissertation proposal today, I should have some idea of what it would be. Mm-hmm. And that can guide me in like deciding what courses to take right, and right. writing seminar papers that will have me reading relevant literature. Um, obviously, this is subject to change. I'm going to learn things. My questions are going to change. You know, I'm going to be interested in things tomorrow that yesterday I didn't know existed. Um, but if I'm doing it right, as I go through the program, the changes that I make are going to get smaller and smaller, mm-hmm. which is sort of mathematical if you think about it. It's like a curve <laughs> that asymptotically approaches. Sure, sure. Um, but so that was it. I was really trying to just refine those questions and, and then sort of keep in the back of my mind, like someday I'm going to need to figure out how to get paid. But um, I wasn't really actively working on that at the time. And then I applied, I think it was my fourth year, there was one tenure track job that came up that I applied for and I was ABD and it was in a really prestigious place. I was not really remotely qualified for it. Um, But after I applied, um, I was thinking about, you know, at that time, um, my spouse had just changed jobs and, you know, I have a, a, a daughter who was born during spring break of my first year in grad school. At this time, she was four years old and we had won the um, DC charter school lottery. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about having to move my family for this job and it was giving me panic attacks. Yeah, sure, of course. And then I was like, okay, I need to listen to that. Maybe the academic job market is not for me. And then I went on the academic jobs wiki and I saw that for this job, they had contacted the finalists about campus visits. I never heard a word from them one way or the other. <laughs> And it was like a weight lifted. And I was like, I will listen to my uh-huh. body and I will not go there. Yeah. Um, and so that was as close as I ever came. That was the one tenure track job I ever applied for. Um, and so then my focus became, how do I finish my PhD and then not move? Were you actually talking about this with your um, your mentors or anybody who was in the linguistics department? Like, was it a topic of conversation? I mean, I was really like publicly even in the earlier phase, sort of um, industry ambivalent, let's say, about where mm-hmm. I wanted to go. And this thing, what I said to you about, like, I don't care who signs my paycheck. I said that yeah. out loud 
mm. you know, as a third and fourth year grad student. Um, and I was always sort of like reminding folks that we are not all aspiring professors. Um, Bold of you to say that. It was a good place to do it because, you know, Georgetown has also and did at the time also had a um, applied master's degree yes. in in sociolinguistics. So it's called the Master's in Language and Communication. Yep. Yes. Um, we, one of our one of our folks, Alex Johnston, is currently the head of that program and they do tremendous yeah. work. Yeah, they do. And like just by them being there, it meant that it was a thing that I could say. Mm-hmm. And so like if I could have, you know, faculty mentors, let's say, who would say, I see that you've, you're, you're looking at other kinds of jobs. I can't help you with that, but I can help you write your dissertation. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's, that's honest, mm-hmm. even if it's not ideal. Um, and it's definitely better than, if you're not going to grow up to cite me in high-impact journals, then my time is better spent with other advisees, <laughs> right. which is a story that I've heard other people tell, and it was not my experience. Yeah, it, it is often the case. Uh, your experience, I've heard this from other folks who have been at Georgetown, too, that Georgetown is uh, not unique, but definitely rarer in that it has the MLC program and that the mm-hmm. faculty there are much more open to the idea of working in industry. It is certainly not the case at most linguistics departments who are still stuck in the idea that, well, of course, you're going to go get a tenure track job. And working in industry is like this weird offshoot for people who can't cut it in academia mm-hmm. and it's unfortunate because the world is changing so fast that it's just not going to be the case anymore there are so few jobs i mean people who have been out on the market that i've i've chatted with on the podcast have just said basically there are no jobs there are very few jobs jobs open up when somebody dies or when people retire and the retirement just is not happening because mm-hmm. that's just not the way it is. So I think um, the being the person who says, I don't care who signs my paycheck in most linguistics departments would definitely mark you as like the weird outsider who's not buying into the story that's being told. That's so interesting to me because, you know, as you sort of um, mentioned before that I um, have been working since I finished my PhD, I've been working mainly with anthropologists. Mm-hmm. Um, and even the the linguistics that I was doing is like as close as you can get to anthropology. Um, and I feel like that voice definitely does still exist within anthropology, but it's not as universal as what you're describing, mm-hmm. yeah. where, you know, even if you go back in the history of anthropology, it started as an applied discipline. Yeah. Really supporting colonialism and saying we need somebody who can understand the natives so we can go in and pacify them. Um, and that's obviously hugely problematic. And there's been a lot of reflexivity and soul searching and attempts to make amends since then. Um, but I think the aside from all of the um, colonialist horrors that that people ended up being complicit in or even perpetrating in some cases, the silver lining, if I can say that, um, the good thing that we can take forward is the idea that what we do matters. And we can see, you know, sometimes it's because our ancestors have have done great harm, but that's also power that we could use for good if we figure out how. Mm-hmm. And it's also, you know, it's been the case that even in other places than sort of colonial administration, um, there's a history of anthropologists being involved in a lot of different kinds of application, you know, cultural heritage, uh, cultural resource management, healthcare, public health are, are some big ones. And then recently, I've read histories that trace it to the um, early 2000s dot-com crash. Hmm. And I suspect this is also sort of a pivotal moment for linguistics as well, where in 1999, if you have a tech company, 
you can say, we're going to make this just because we can, and it's shiny and cool. But then after the crash, you're like, if I'm going to put the resources into making this, I want to have an idea if anybody wants it. And that's an ethnographic question. Yeah, for sure. It's very interesting. I have to think about that. I think the same is true in some ways for sociology, which has always been far more open to um, quote unquote industry jobs, although a lot of people tend to think of it in terms of government work or, um, you know, for the public benefit. But all of the three social sciences, and I I'm counting linguistics as a social science here. So mm-hmm. sociology, anthropology, and linguistics are all so closely related and have so much overlap and skill sets that overlap quite a lot. It it's just always struck me as really weird that linguistics particularly seemed so resistant to the fact that, hey, linguists are valuable and could do jobs out there in the world, just like sociologists and anthropologists. Like, yeah. there's no reason why not. That's why we're out here telling the story, right? <laughs> exactly. Um so I'm I'm just really I'm mulling over your mindset here, which is just so different from what most people had. So then when did you, so you're finishing your PhD, what was the job hunt like as you were coming to the end of that? Um, so I was really, I was just sort of looking around. Like I said, I wanted to stay in DC. I was looking at federal government jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, there was something I was sort of trying to learn more about at the Department of Education. Uh, it was like a grants management position in the Institute for Education Sciences. Um, I was looking around at some other different like research nonprofits. Um, and then the way that I learned about, so the job that I have now, it's, it's my fourth different job title at the American Anthropological Association. Mm-hmm. Um, I started off in February of 2016. So we're, we're three weeks shy of my eighth anniversary, um, as a postdoc. And the way that I learned about that was through an all-member email blast that went out and said, our postdoc, Katie, has been doing some great work with us. Um, she's been focusing on a bunch of stuff, including career diversity for anthropology PhDs. And now we want to congratulate her on finding a diverse career of her own. She's gone off to I forget where to do I forget what. And the light bulb went off, and I scrolled down to the bottom of the email where it says, here are the highlights from the AAA job bank. And number one on the list was, here in the AAA office, we're hiring a new postdoc. <laughs> wow. Okay, there yeah. it was. But but I think I want to take a step back before that, though, because one way to tell that story is like, oh, my, how lucky. You know, mm-hmm. um, I was a AAA member because a year and a half earlier, my advisor had said to me, I'm a AAA member, and here's somebody putting together a conference panel that I think your work would be a great fit for. And that's how I joined. And it was just right, lucky right. that they even had this postdoc. But also, I like to think that fortune favors the prepared. Yes. And specifically with, with you know, the idea of association management being an industry that exists. At this year's LSA annual meeting, I was in a session about people who have found internships. And it happened that it was all folks who had done internships in different um, tech companies. But then talking about the experience that that gave them, and some of them were still in school, but some of them talking about how it helped them transition into their career. And I realized that I had done something as a grad student that functioned for me as an internship, even though it wasn't. And what it is, is that I was in student leadership of AAAL, the American Association for Applied Linguistics. I was was super involved in AAAL. I was at their meeting in, I want to say, 2013. And I went to the association business meeting because I'm that nerd. And I want to say, like, associations are run by the people who show up. And so <laughs> yes. if you ever go to any conference and you say, why does this association do this boneheaded thing? Well, the reason they do it is that you 
haven't gone to their business meeting and like raised your hand and pointed it out to them. Right. So you want to be in the room. I think a big part of the reason I got into ethnography is my lifelong impulse to walk behind the door marked authorized personnel only. <laughs> so I went to this AAAL thing and I made a big stink about like how we could be supporting contingent faculty better because I was reading a lot of Quitlet at that time, being 2013. And then somebody like heard me being a loudmouth and said, you know, we're setting up an ad hoc committee for grad students to inform the board on how we could do better stuff to support student professional development through AAAL. And I ended up being on the ad hoc committee. And then when they transitioned it to a standing student council, I was one of the inaugural pair of co-chairs. Mm -hmm. And being a co-chair of the AAAL grad student council kind of was an internship for me in association yeah. management. You know, yeah, I was working yeah. closely with leadership. I was working closely with staff. I was getting a sense of how an annual meeting is put together and what mm -hmm. kinds of stuff it does and doesn't do. And so then when I saw this job come out from the anthropology, it's like, you know, I can talk about that industry with some level of familiarity yeah. more than just being a member. That really speaks to um, the, the wider concept of networking, which we've talked about a lot on this show. Mm -hmm. And yeah. networking happens in so many different ways. And even as a graduate student, there are ways where mm -hmm. you can do this kind of networking and gain that kind of experience just within your own sphere. Like you don't have to go work at a tech company, right? Like there are opportunities for you to do things where you gain this very hands-on experience and you learn so many of the things that, that people always say are, are super important for, for working outside academia, like learning to work on a team and learning to mm -hmm. supervise other people and mm -hmm. learning to um, talk about your skill set in a way that other people can understand. So it's, again, not something that I think it's talked about enough within academia, the, the fact that these opportunities exist. And it is a thing you have to commit to, right? Like if you're in graduate school and you have to be working, like really working to support your family or whatever, you may not have as much time to volunteer because these positions are almost always volunteer, right? Like you don't yeah. get paid for doing that. So there is a bit of privilege involved in it, but it if you can do it, it absolutely pays off. Um, I'm, I'm thinking, as you were talking about my own experience at Berkeley, running the Berkeley Linguistics Society, which was mm -hmm. a tremendous learning experience for me, and we did not get paid for that. And it was a huge sink of time and effort and blood and sweat and tears and all that. But it was amazing. And I'm really glad that I had the opportunity to do it. We were not encouraged to do it by the faculty. Nobody said, you should do this. It's a really good life experience. It was like, well, the society needs to go on and somebody's got to run it. So, you know, come on, step up and, and do it. And framing it differently, as you were just talking about, I think would make a huge difference in just letting people know that that this is actually going to be a great life skill for you later on, and it's going to be a maybe a pain in the ass while you're doing it, but man, it's going to pay off later. Yeah. I mean, I think the networking aspect of it that you mentioned is hugely important. Mm -hmm. um, I think you used the phrase before, it's not what you know, it's who you know. Yeah. Um, and when I, when I first learned that, I, I saw it in a really sort of craven, like old boys club kind yes. of way of like... Uh -huh. um, you know, the, the reason that I didn't get into grad school the first time is that the people writing my references weren't fancy enough. Yeah. And that does exist. But I think another way to think about it um, is if you say none of us is as smart as all of us. Right, right. right. Yeah. Um, it's like if you've ever gone to an academic conference and gone to a talk with somebody who's like working on something that's similar to what you do, but not quite. Mm -hmm. 
And so they're thinking about things in a different way. And you really just want to have that conversation with them. Yeah. Like so much of learning happens in that way. And so the more people you know, like they make you smarter just by you knowing them. Absolutely. And And vice versa. Yeah, that's the flip side of it that most people don't even think about is people want to know you because you're interesting and you do cool stuff and you know other people. And yeah, it's, it's not social currency as payment. It's right. more barter, right? It, it's like we all want to share things and we all want to help other people out and we all want to see everybody succeed. So knowing yeah. more people makes it work better. I mean, it, that's that's the social currency part. I wouldn't even call it barter. I'd call it mutual aid. I, yeah, I'm that's, idealistic. that's actually much better. Yes, I completely agree. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> but I think also like thinking about more concrete skills that you get out of it. I would say aside from the industry specific knowledge that I got from my time in AAAL, a lot of it would fall under the rubric of project management. And yes. I know, I imagine you've talked a lot about project management on here. And, you know, I, I one book that I love that I read is called uh, Project Management for the Non-Project Management Professional, because <laughs> uh-huh. the way they frame it is that so much of professional work in any industry these days is some kind of low-key project management that doesn't yeah. necessarily mean you need to have a PMP, but it means you've got like people who are working with you and you're making a thing together that has to be done by a certain time and it's only so much money you can spend on it. And like, that is a project. Yep. Milestones, deadlines. (laughs) Yeah. I've heard people say that writing a dissertation is basically project management and like, I guess ish, but your budget is whatever you can find in between your couch cushions and (laughs) your timeline is whatever you can talk your advisor into. Mm -hmm. Um, or like, how soon do you actually need to be out in the world earning a paycheck? And so it's very fungible. And your collaborators are like, I mean, in my experience, I had writing partners that was more like we would help each other out by holding each other accountable to our own deadlines, but they weren't the same as like colleagues at a business. Yeah. And and what you were talking about before with your experience um, with conferences, I mean, running a conference is a project, putting out a proceedings is a, is a project and it has all of the things that you would find in industry because you've got, as you just said, like you've got a budget and you've got deadlines and the thing has to be finished and there are levels of approval that you have to go through. So just doing that exposes you to this way of managing work that is just essential for any industry job. Exactly. So that's like putting together a couple of PD events for the AAAL meetings in in 2014 and 15 was more like a project management experience Mm -hmm. than writing my dissertation was. So let's keep going with the the American Anthropological Association. So you Uh had this this postdoc there and you've you've been there now for a long time. So what was the, the path like as part of it? Like after you got in there, did you realize like, oh, this is where I want to work. This is definitely the people I want signing my paychecks. Um, well, it's interesting the way that that goes. Like the, the what I was working on there, um, I was, so I wrote a blog when I was in grad school and one of the final posts that I wrote, I was reviewing this stuff recently. It was about if I had to like invent a job for myself right now, what would it be? Mm-hmm. And it had nothing to do with association management. It had nothing to do with higher ed. It had nothing to do with anthropology. Well, kind of did. It used some like ethnographic methods. Um, it's it's not the job that I got. It's like a, a, a castle in the air that I built and I never figured out how to bridge to it. Uh-huh. Um, and so, you know, what I've said to people before is I think applied research because I was a postdoc. It was, I was doing research on the profession of anthropology. Where are people working? What are their working conditions like? Um, where do they get degrees from? This sort of thing. 
Uh, what are the trends over time and how do we compare to sibling disciplines? Those are not questions that I was like really excited about coming out of grad school. Um, but I figured out how to like bring my own interests and priorities into it. Um, because within that scope of stuff, there's always ways that you can influence it, right? Uh -huh. um, I heard once, this was on uh, a different podcast on This Anthropological Life. They had Alex Mack on. She works in industry. And she said, you you turn the job you have into one that needs an anthropologist because you're an anthropologist, <laughs> yes. yep, right? Yep, right, exactly. And so I kind of had that experience. Um, and what I've actually compared it to is an arranged marriage. I think a lot of applied okay. research, it's like, I didn't fall in love with my research topic. I, I was assigned it by my boss, or in some cases, it might be a client or something like that. And then we learned to make a life together. Mm -hmm. And that was really my approach to doing research in that sort of postdoc space. But then I had like enough room to branch out and to do other stuff. I started thinking more about like, um, how do we use these insights that we're getting to figure out professional development offerings we might have for members? Or, you know, especially thinking about, you know, the, the question that sort of caught my eye on that initial posting, thinking about career diversity and looking at the work that sibling societies have done, you know, the, that term career diversity, uh, I learned about it from the American Historical Association. And their messaging is that they really insist on that because what they mean by it is that the professoriate is one career option among many. Mm -hmm. It's not like academic and non-academic. <laughs> uh -huh. um, it's like there's a bunch of industries you could work in, one of which happens to be higher ed. Right. It's not first among equals. It's just one. And that kind of messaging, that kind of perspective, I found to be really inspirational. Yeah. And so I was thinking about, like, how do we talk to our grad student members and how do we organize them to think together about the struggles they're facing, like mm -hmm. similar to what I had been doing at AAAL. Um, and that was how I made space for myself in there, in this world of like, yes, I'm, I'm writing a survey for all AAA members to figure out what their jobs are like, but like, what are we doing with it? Mm -hmm. um, and so I was in that role for like a year and a half. And they said to me, well, you know, this was set up as a two-year postdoc, but you're doing a great job of it. So if you want to stay on, we'll Ooh. keep you instead of posting for it again. Wow. And I was like, yeah, this is this is cool. And I will definitely take it over being back on the job market again. Um, so then I, I sort of transitioned. This is in 2017 now, uh, mid-2017. I transitioned to a regular full-time staff role. Mm -hmm. My title at that time was Manager of Education, Research, and Professional Development, which is mm -hmm. extremely long. It barely fit on my <laughs> business card, um, which feels very DC in a way. Yeah, it covers um, a lot of ground, certainly. It does. But it was like... So you're doing education stuff, and it's kind of education research, but we don't want to use the word education because we also recognize that our members who don't work in an education setting might find that alienating, and we want to send a message that what you do is for them also. So we want to have the word professional development in there because that's kind of industry neutral, but also you do a lot of research. And so it's like, which one of these do we want to drop? We couldn't pick one, and so it all ended up sort of getting thrown in there. Uh-huh. <laughs> Um, yeah. And then I did that. That was my title from 2017 until like through the end of 2019. So like two and a half years. And what ended up happening over that time is that I sort of gradually ended up taking on more responsibility for education programs. And just like some of it was stuff that was already ongoing and I was trying to systematize it. Some of it is uh, stuff that I was sort of creating, education programs that we didn't have before. 
Uh-huh. And so when I say education programs, um, I want to flesh that out a little because I wasn't teaching classes. That's not what I mean. It's like uh, sometimes it was like a um, webinars or workshops or communities of practice around different things. We have a community of practice of uh, chairs of anthropology departments around the U.S. And also we have some international participants um, and thinking about like bringing them together. You know, they would come together before my time for uh, we would buy them brunch one day at the annual meeting. And then we also added a summer mini conference. And then we also added a monthly networking call and Mm -hmm. trying to get them to turn to one another for support on stuff. Because if you're a chair of anthropology, the only way you're going to meet another chair of anthropology is through us, right? Right, By definition, you're the only one in your campus. Um, But also doing some leadership development stuff, like um, for early career members who are interested in maybe uh, learning more about AAA leadership or, you know, taking on a a leadership role at some point, we want to provide entryways into that. Mm -hmm. And so that's also kind of an education program, like education about how the association works. And then we also have public facing stuff. I got to work on the curatorial team of a traveling exhibition that we produced. It's called World on the Move, 250,000 Years of Human Migration. Oh, cool. And that was really exciting opportunity. And like the main thing that I did there, because I'm not really a curator, although I, I, I got to sort of hang out and learn about it. But the exhibition has got some uh, interactive components to it. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, with my background in... Uh, classroom teaching, instructional design, I got to help think about like what the shape of those would be and how people would be able to participate in this exhibition and not just like read text and look at photos. I want to just put in an advertisement for uh, an interview that I just did last week with someone else, and that will probably come before yours goes live. Um, Mm -hmm. A woman named Emily Graff, who worked in a museum, and she's a linguist, and she worked in the Planet Word Museum in Washington. Um, oh, nice. And so we spent quite a bit of time talking about the overlap between linguistics and museum studies, because there's a lot there also. And the the language and the way that things are presented in museums is super important. And having a linguist to do it will greatly benefit the people who are putting the exhibition on, but also, you know, really fine tune it so people understand what you're trying to do when you have to use words and it's not just visuals. Yeah, that's a great point. I realized, like, since you mentioned that, that, like, I haven't said anything about what difference it makes that I'm a linguist doing this work. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I can tell that story. It's all there, right? I'm, I'm, I'm writing surveys and analyzing survey responses. I'm designing, you know, museum, not, it's even, it's, it's not in the museum. It's traveling in public libraries right now, in exhibition spaces. All of these are, are speech events. Mm-hmm. Yes, of course. And, and maybe they are in a kind of a distributed, asynchronous, you know, mediated kind of a way. But I think having awareness of like, what is my recipient design here, right? If I'm going to pull out some vocabulary from grad school, who is this for? What will draw them in? What do they care about? To me, those are very like sociocultural linguistic kinds of questions. Yeah, absolutely. It's like, how do I, how do I predict what you might be interested in? How do I lead you along to a thing that I'm saying and then check on whether you're following? Right. Um, and when you respond, how do I interpret that? And given that this is a traveling exhibition too, what is the broadest way that you can 
convey that in words using words that you think the majority of people are going to understand correctly, right? Yeah. You, you don't want to get so bogged down in your own idea of how best to express it because you understand it. But then what about all the people who don't know some of those vocabulary words? Like you have to say it in a way that they will understand. Exactly. I also am looking at your in your LinkedIn profile that you did this uh, amazing uh, work on anthropology majors preparing for life after college. And can I just oh, say yeah. how envious I am that this exists for anthropology students? Like, ah, we need this for linguists. We absolutely need this. You know, every single thing they said in there also applies to linguists. And so I would encourage folks to read that as well. Um, yeah, I will I will put a link to it. It's in the Annals of Anthropological Practice. So you can go and, and look at it. And I people should absolutely read these articles. Yeah, um, that was a really fun project to work on. I mean, just to, to flesh it out a little bit, that was a question that I think it came up sort of in a hallway conversation between me and a colleague, is that we have a lot of conversation about like, if we're going to, you know, the, the way that it works a lot in, in you know, discovery majors like anthropology and linguistics, that like, you didn't take it in high school, but also it's not the name of a job. And so you just sort of fall into it and you want to try it because you're curious. Um, and then I think there's a lot of work that has to be done to like help students feel okay making that decision, mm-hmm. um, especially if they don't come from wealth, if they're first generation students, yeah. if they don't like have the experience in their family that would help them to have faith in liberal arts and say, look, all that a BA really means is that you know how to you know, write persuasively and read critically and talk to people. If you're thinking, you know, I need to see exactly how this leads me to a job. We want to figure out how we can tell that story so that people can feel confident in making that decision and not feel like they have to go major in something that sounds like a job. And so we were talking about this and it's like, okay, this is this also, it's an ethnographic question. And who has access to the field site? Right. If I were to go in and start hanging around with college students and like talking to them about their career prospects, that's creepy. But other undergrads can do that. Mm-hmm. And so we we wrote a grant um, and we were funded, and most of the funding went to supporting our student researchers. Um, yeah. We had a competitive call for, we called it undergraduate research fellows. And they had to have a faculty mentor and a research plan of how they were going to investigate this question of like, in your peer group, how, do, how are people wrestling with this question of like yeah. figuring out what comes next? And then my role turned out to be, you know, again, project management. And also non-formal education, which I don't, I don't know if this is a familiar term for folks. You know, you hear about formal education, which is a class you take for credit. You hear about informal education, which is like a drop-in thing. You just like go to a session one time. Um, but I've also heard people talk about this intermediate thing called non-formal education, which basically means you have a, a core group of consistent participants over some amount of time working together on a thing, but it's not like leading to a degree. It's like a, an internship or a fellowship or um, I think some kinds of like, you know, I'm, I'm taking a class right now on um, playing bluegrass in, a, in an ensemble. Uh-huh. Um, and that, that feels like sort of non-formal education. And that was really what it was for our research fellows that, we, you know, we would meet once or twice a month and they would update each other on their progress. They ended up turning to their faculty mentors mainly for like help with methods and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um so what we ended up doing instead was just saying, here's what I'm finding. Does this resonate with what y'all are finding? And then in the end, when we went to write it up, that was how we organized it. It was based on 
um, what they were learning. Yeah, so, very organic. Yeah, and it ended up it, it did it, it was very sort of grassroots, um, but it's we have we have a collection of six papers where the first one is just an introduction, and then the next four were written by the research fellows and their faculty mentors, which the first one is um, why do people decide to major in anthropology? Mm-hmm. The second one is what do people get out of majoring in anthropology? The third one is how do they think about that next step transitioning out? Mm-hmm. And the fourth one is what kinds of support are they getting and might we add mm-hmm. um, from their departments and their institutions? And then the sixth one, we kind of flipped the script a little. It was me and a AAA staff colleague who wrote it. And it was like, you know, for the last five papers, we've been thinking of this as a research project. Now we're going to think about it as a, an educational opportunity. Mm. And we'll say for our research fellows, what did they learn? Yeah. through their participation in this program and how did it help them see themselves as future anthropologists yeah oh what what an amazing i, I was going to say on the job training but for the undergraduates who were doing this like putting something like that on a resume if you're applying to a job would be stellar people would kill yeah. for people who have had that kind of experience yeah that was really it was it was great to be able to and then also like just by the nature of it you know because you we talk a lot about you know we have these skills coming out of academia that we don't know how to explain them yep. in ways that are appealing to anybody else in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that was such a key component of the research project that we were doing together is to say, like, what is this that we're learning? Why do we care about it? And then what, is it, what does it give us by participating mm-hmm. in it? Yeah. Um, and so it was really an opportunity for them to learn sort of in a bank shot way what they needed for their own professional development. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. So you have a new job now, a new title, I, I should say. And, I do. Uh, so tell us how that happened and what, like, what are you doing? How's it different? One way to think about it um, is if I look back over, you know, ever since I decided to major in comparative literature and math, um, is that every every four years or so, I sort of shift. My career path uh-huh. has been super nonlinear, you know, uh, going going into the workforce and then back to grad school and then back into uh, nonprofit work. and um, I think this is like the, the latest thing for me. Part of it is just that I'm like restless. And so uh-huh. I've, I've set up these education programs and I'm ready for like somebody else to run them and I can do something new. And luckily I have a, a boss who recognizes that and is going to like indulge me in it. But what it is, is kind of responding to some needs that we have identified within the association around the term that, that our executive director uses for it is change management. Mm-hmm. We're seeing we do a lot of stuff because we've always done them, um, which is a two-edged sword because on the one hand, people are accustomed to it and they know what they know and they know what they like. But on the other hand, like sometimes it's not serving us terribly well and it also alienates people who might want something different. Mm-hmm. And so how we move into a, a new space around something like, you know, you could say how our annual meeting is structured or um, what uh some of these decision making processes look like at the association wide level um how the governance structures work moving us into something that sort of objectively feels like it would be a benefit there's also um a question of how to bring the whole community along with you mm-hmm. and like on the one hand help them see where we're going but also it's really a dialectic you know um one of my mentors fred erickson said that uh conversation is like climbing a tree that climbs back <laughs> and I think community organizing very much also is. Mm. Um, 
And so it is kind of a community organizing job. Or, you know, what I've said about it is that it's half community organizing and half in-house organizational culture consulting, which like organizational culture consulting is like a sort of business anthropology term for uh, going into a company and figuring out like how are things, how could things be more smoothly in terms of how we organize ourselves and how we get along with one another. Yeah. Um, but our, our association members are not coworkers. It's a different kind of a relationship that right, we have right. with them. Yeah. Um, and so that's a really exciting question to have. It's it's very, I want to say political, not in the sense of Democrats versus Republicans, for sure, because if you've ever met an anthropologist, you know that probably none of them are Republicans. And also not in the sense of like um, disagreeing about stuff um, or like power struggles, but really in the sense of um, how do we uh, organize ourselves and figure out like how we can how we can act in coordination with one mm-hmm. another. That was a, a question that came up for me a lot, even in grad school. You know, um, my my dissertation chair was Mark Sicoli, who's at UVA now, and and he was working with these videos of uh, indigenous people in the state of Oaxaca in southern Mexico, um, and looking at like how people do different kinds of everyday tasks together, and the question of like doing a thing together is qualitatively different to Mm -hmm. doing a thing at the same time. Right. You know, what does that togetherness come from? It reminds me of a cartoon that I saw once with like a whole bunch of people playing in an orchestra and one of the violinists stands up and goes, done. (laughs) That's, that's not an ensemble, even if it's people playing music at the same time. So what, where does that togetherness come from? Which is a question about culture and interaction. So it's linguistic anthropology, right? Yeah. Um, but then helping people to to see where we're going and then also helping us sort of as a collective to keep people engaged and respond to what their needs are. Um, it's very much both of those things at once. That's so fascinating. I have to say, I am just so impressed with the way that AAA is um, involved in serving its members, mm-hmm. right? Uh, like, and, and what you, I, I also have to circle back a minute to that phrase change management. And I think the way that you guys are using it is totally appropriate. I I just want to put a note of caution to people out in the industry world, like don't say change management because it has really negative, unfortunately, baggage attached to it because of the way it's been abused by many companies, which is bringing in weird outside consultants who spend like, you know, 10 minutes talking to people. And then they're like, you have to do the, the floor plan differently in here and people's titles get changed and it's very disturbing. So that's just been my experience. I think the way you're using it is completely appropriate, but um, yeah, just, just beware. There are certain things that as a concept, it's like communism, great in theory. And then you try to apply it and it's like, well, maybe not, maybe not in the way that you're thinking about using it anyway. Um, but the, the work that you're doing, coming up with strategic initiatives that actually serve the membership is tremendous. And I hope that the LSA, which is sort of the equivalent organization, but far less powered or empowered, I suppose, for linguists is kind of just coming around to this. You know, you you are serving all of the folks in the anthropological community in any in the ways that they need them, right? Mm-hmm. Not just the ways that some people think they should use it. And for linguists, that qu- hasn't quite happened yet. It's starting to happen, but it really hasn't happened yet. And I think the, the way the world is changing, it's going to have to happen because the old way of doing things, the old academic top-down hierarchical paradigm is just not, it's not viable anymore. It just doesn't work. Yeah. Um, I, I think, you know, thinking about the LSA, and I know that the um, 
the history of this podcast even is related to the Linguistics Career Launch, the <laughs> yes. Linguists Beyond Academia Special Interest Group, which full disclosure, I'm also a member of, and I also have uh, another position in, in LSA leadership. I'm on the program committee uh -huh. um, for the 2024 through 26 annual meeting cycles because I want some of these perspectives to be included yeah. in the conversation when we decide what happens at the annual meeting. Yeah. Um, but like looking at the Linguists Beyond Academia Special Interest Group, how old is that? Like that's since I was in grad school, it has come to exist. Yeah, it's like 10, like around yeah. 10 years old and started off very, very small. Um, Anna Marie Trester and uh, Anastasia Nieland had been the people yeah. who originally started it. And then I became involved at some point. And in the beginning, it was a real struggle mm -hmm. because it just was not viewed as something that was necessary. It was viewed by the LSA leadership as this sort of like, well, interesting, idiosyncratic, maybe some people will find it useful. And getting mm -hmm. traction within the LSA and especially with linguistics departments was incredibly difficult. That's changing now. It's definitely changing. But having it be, I mean, to be honest, in past years, and this is not involving the current leadership at LSA, who I feel are, are much more open to it, but past leadership of LSA basically said, we don't need to do this. When we proposed having sessions at the annual meeting that was specifically focused on careers and talking about paths and stuff, they just said, no, nobody needs that. You don't need to do that. And it was very discouraging. We persevered. And now the current leadership is definitely saying, yes, we do need this. We need to support this kind of stuff, which feels really, really qualitatively different from like six years ago. Yeah, yeah. The vibe when I go to LSA now is so different to what I remember from grad school. Definitely. And I want to say just like on the level of expectations, right? You say the, the special interest group is maybe 10 years old. The Society for Applied Anthropology was founded in 1941. <laughs> Amazing. Okay, great. <laughs> and so the amount of work that the LBA has done, um, yeah. that's the Linguist Beyond Academia group, like in such a short time frame, it is really, the conversation is different now. And so yeah. I want to stay riding on that train. Uh, well, thank you for saying that. Uh, it's hard to tell when you're inside of it how much of a difference you're making, you know, because a lot of the time it just it feels like you're kind of grinding along and you don't see it. But having gotten feedback from people who have uh, come to our meetings and people who attended the linguistics career launch a couple of years ago, who have gotten jobs and who have then in turn supported other linguists who are coming up and providing them with that networking and with that guidance and that mentorship, that all feels really good. And I think the way the AAA is set up and the way the work that you've been doing is really aspirational for us. Like we would love to be as organized and effective as the work that you've been doing, honestly. Yeah. I mean, I guess three things. One is thank you. That's amazing to hear. Um, I feel like it's a similar, like when, when I'm up to my eyeballs on it, it does feel like a struggle. And so I want somebody to be like, you know, grandma tells you how you've grown because grandma <laughs> uh -huh. doesn't see you every day. Right, right. Exactly. Um, I guess the second thing I would say is give it time. It's yeah. new and it's done so much in such a short time. And so it's got momentum. And the third thing is just, you know, let's keep talking. Yeah, absolutely. I, I am so glad and I'm, I'm a little sorry now that it's taken us so long to make official contact, but I feel like there are things that we could be doing with you and with the AAA that we haven't really leveraged before. Um, we have done some things before. I, I went to a AAA meeting in San Jose several years ago in the mm -hmm. before times before the mm -hmm. pandemic um, to be part of the uh, like career alley, which was really interesting. And it was fun to sit there and, and talk to the students. And that was 
a little bit of entree into it. And the whole time I was sitting there with, with Anna Marie and I uh-huh. can't remember if Anastasia was there, we just were looking at each other like, why doesn't the LSA do this? <laughs> and it really made us feel like we are so far behind, so much catching up to do. Well, I'm in. Sign me up. <laughs> Thank you for saying that. Now, I will point out that you've made a public commitment, so I, we will be holding you to this. You've said it, and it's on a podcast, so you Oops. can't back out of okay. it now. <laughs> <laughs> um, Daniel, thank you so much. This has been such a great conversation. I am just so pleased to talk with you and to make a new friend and to, to hear about all the ways that you know there's so much synchronicity between what you're doing and what we're doing. So um, any parting words that you want to share? You've already dispensed so much advice. And I was thinking you're, you're like a tremendously quotable person. You said about 10 things that I wrote down while we were talking because I love them so much. Oh, thank you so much. Um, yeah, I... Uh... Don't, don't flatter me on that because I'm a little bit too proud of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've already given a, a lot of advice, which is going to be very practicable for all the people who are listening. Um, and I think uh, well, I would like to put your LinkedIn profile in the notes, if that's okay. If people want to yeah. contact you with specific questions, that would be That's totally awesome. fine, yeah. Okay, great. And um, maybe we'll be setting something up. Um, there will be more linguistic career launches to come, so... I would say to people, keep an eye out for that. I will. Great. Again, thank you so much for your time. This has been wonderful. Yeah. Thanks, Laura. Linguistics Career Launch 2021 was a one-month intensive program intended to familiarize linguistics students and faculty with career options beyond academia in business, tech, government, and nonprofit organizations. Videos of all our recorded sessions are available on our YouTube channel. LCL 2021 was organized by Nancy Frischberg, Alexander Johnston, Emily Pace, Susan Steele, and Laurel Sutton. You can get in touch at linguisticscareerlaunch at gmail.com.